This is John Beethan, your host of this particular episode number 71, which is titled, Dr. David, Discovering Your Magnificent Mind. Now, David draws from his nearly 40 years of public service in three particular fields, law enforcement, priesthood, and therapist. And he inspires audiences, large and small, and shows people how to realize the life of their dreams. I had a particularly good time with this particular interview, and I'm really looking forward to spending more time with him. And we also mentioned talking about working with uh, Cat Bird. He works with her, and uh, she was previously on one of our episodes on AlternativeHealthTools.com. Come visit at the show notes, and you'll see the links that we mentioned within the podcast, and includes links to his most recent book, which is titled Discovering Your Magnificent Mind. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. It's great to have you here. And where are you uh, living these days? Currently, as we speak, I'm in my office in Beverly Hills, California. Oh, very nice. Very, very nice. Somebody's got to be there. (laughs) Well, I think there's more than you there. A lot of people, yeah. I just was out getting some Starbucks between my last appointment and this and this the session, and uh, man, it take your life in your hands trying to cross some of these streets. But anyway, <laughs> we made it. Oh, nice. So yeah, we got uh, we got introduced uh, from um, Cat Bird or Catherine Bird, mm-hmm. and you came highly recommended, and I think we're about to find out why. Yeah, she is a fascinating person. We do work in other circles together, and um, mm-hmm. I would I would both kill or die for her. So the fact that she <laughs> is willing to recommend you, I'm glad to be here with you. Oh, that's nice. Well, hopefully you won't feel any pain during this uh, <laughs> during this interview. Yeah, that's great. So, how do most people know you? What? How are you mostly known? I mean, how does how, how would how would you say Cat experiences you and in, in the work you do and the work you've done together? We uh, are both. We do both do very different types of human development work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm a certified and clinical hypnotherapist with a PhD in clinical psychology, mm-hmm. who's done kind of the standard uh, psychology gig for years until I discovered the power of hypnotherapy. She does lots of very um, uh, exciting work in uh, in in men's. Uh, evolving and um, lots of more overtly spiritual and I do more overtly clinical at least in this work that I do here in Beverly Hills Uh, but uh, we're about the same thing we're about helping people live the best life they can live yeah that's awesome well I I was pretty excited when she uh, basically put me in contact with you because there was a period in my life where I studied NLP for like six years and a mm-hmm. big part of it was, you know, the Milton model, Milton Erickson model of mm-hmm. hypnosis. And uh, I, I discovered in all the training I did there that um, I have a tendency to come from that place when I'm, my language pattern has a tendency to be somewhat hypnotic. These aren't the droids you're looking for kind of thing. <laughs> so, And that happens to all of us. I think we are, we are drawn to our healing modality or our transformational modalities based on what journey we've been involved in to begin with, because I too am certified in NLP, so I'm very familiar with that language. Yeah, awesome. How did you get into it? I mean, what, I mean, there must have been some sort of aha moment where you recognize the value in it. You know, when I did my doctorate in clinical psychology 20 years ago, we had a smattering of a class about hypnotherapy. You know, they said hypnosis has been used in the past with some effect, and maybe sometime you might want to read a book on it, and let's move on kind of thing. Uh, there's just some bias in kind of the traditional world uh, around some of that. Now, now, 20 years later, in, in practice with people, especially I do a lot of work with people who are recovering from addictions mm-hmm. and abuse, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I found that they have what we all have, a default setting. The default setting mm-hmm. is a resistance pattern. That even when the change is good, even when the change could be life-saving, even when the change is essential, they default to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so to speak. Well, that, you know. that, that's our generation, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, it, you know, clinically we call it homeostasis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the it's that old Greek word homeostasis that said that the return to the one. You know, and the most physical example is when we get a fever. Mm-hmm. You know, our body works hard to break it to return it to more or less ninety eight point six, whatever our norm is, and and so we have these same psychological processes that that when we're trying to make a change, when we're trying to have a, a profound difference in our lives, that we we have this homeostatic kind of principle kick in, and and that we try to get back to that which even though it's destroying us, and we see this. You know, I used to be a cop, and we used to see this with these domestic violence victims, you know, women and men who are just brutalized by their partners, that they continue to opt to go back there, even though literally their life is at risk. And mm-hmm. and it's this, this pattern of default. It's this pattern of homeostasis and play, going back to what, even though seems crazy to everyone else in the world, uh, it makes perfect sense at one level. And so, traditional psychotherapy mm-hmm. does a lot of work around trying to butt up against this wall of resistance by talking and talking and believe me I talk all day long with people so I, I get this right that by talking and talking and talking and talking you remove a brick to the wall of resistance and then eventually you get to another brick and it gets pulled out and then finally eventually the idea is that eventually enough bricks are pulled out that the entire thing crumbles well with hypnotherapy being a, a behavioral subconscious uh, subconscious behavioralist what we've discovered we just hop over that wall we go right to the symptom and we disable the symptom i use a lot of language around software and hardware and all of these default settings that we protect ourselves with that keep us from changing are all software in downloads and so we want to change that up so that's that's what got me into it. just frustrating that we're not seeing the kind of change matter of fact in my book in the preface, I talk a lot about what impelled me into all of this. It was, as a cop, I saw people who wanted to make change. I used to be an Episcopal priest before I retired. I really? saw people wanting to make change, yeah, but couldn't. And as a therapist, I couldn't see people wanting to make change. And so, how do I do it? So, for me, the way in is through the hypnotherapeutic model is what's really worked well for me. Awesome. So, you're skilled in it. You know, I have my idea about hypnosis, but I don't want to assume anything here. Because you're a professional, yeah. you obviously work in a probably a high-profile industry, at least up there, and um, there's a lot of people that come to you, and it's really interesting. I really didn't think too much about it, but the other night I actually saw um, a thing with Dick Cavett interviewing and talking with Miles Davis, and Miles Davis talked mm-hmm. at length about how he crushed his addiction, and mm-hmm. it was about locking him up, locking himself up in a uh, cabin for five days, but but you know. You have you have a little more graceful methods, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I, I I'm I'm really fortunate that my office is part of a medical group here in Beverly Hills. It's it's a very unique medical group. It's two internal medicine doctors, mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, and me. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of their patients. Plus my own outside clients, people that come to me from you know the internet or through word of mouth re, you know referrals. Right. Or reading my books and those kinds of things. But the first session is always the same, whether it's an in-house referral or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, It depends on what what the person presents for. You know, in the United States, the number one reason somebody comes to a hypnotherapist is to stop smoking. Mm -hmm. The number two is to lose weight. Mm -hmm. And then number three kind of scatters across the, the whole spectrum from Learning to not be afraid to speak in public, or you know, make more money, or have be you know, be able to get on a plane without being panicked, or having a better romantic relationship—all these. But clearly, number one and two in the United States is different in Europe. But in the United States, one and two are stop smoking and and, and losing weight. And so, the, yeah, some of the other things you mentioned are actually phobias. Yeah, and fears and phobias are very uh, amenable to hypnotherapy. You know, we have a in, in the training program we have a whole quarter working with nothing but fears and phobias. You know, uh-huh. so it's uh-huh. it's very amenable. Yeah. So the hypno. So in the process, it's um, I'm imagining from my experience that it's um, it's unconscious in terms of are you using language patterns to get people there or. Sometimes uh, I, I practice a little more. It's what's called the Capucinian model of, of hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. John Capus was the founder of the school uh, that, that did the training, um, and and so I am uh, very 
uh, engaged in helping people discover their own symbology, you know, because the, the subconscious mind, which is the 93% of the mind power, you know, the conscious mind is 7%. That's where logic and reason and decision making and willpower and analytical ability are. The rest, habit, emotion, life script, all in the subconscious. Uh, and the language, of course, of the subconscious is not discrete communication like you and I are doing now with verbal language. It's rather subconscious imagery and symbolism, which is why we dream about flying poodles at night or, you know, um, politicians covered in peanut butter. I mean, who knows what, uh, you know, or that deep music can move, can move us or a beautiful piece of art can move us because it's touching that powerful subconscious mind. So one of the things that we do is we help people understand their own inner symbol. Uh, because, you know, if you are raised as I was uh, in the 60s in uh, the Inland Empire of California, your experience is going to, my experience is going to be very different than somebody that was raised during the same exact chronological calendar time in Moscow, USSR. Mm. You know, a whole different simple system, whole different meaning system to, to some of the same words even. So part of the invitation is to find out what their simple system is and what uh, they, they work with. The first session is always what we call conditioning to hypnosis, you know, because people are always wondering whether they can be hypnotized. You know, if somebody right. comes to me and crosses their arms and says, you know what, you can't hypnotize me, I say, you know what, you're absolutely right. But for everyone else… Yeah. For everyone else, you know, it's a matter of learning that hypnosis is a normal and natural function that we're in and out all day long. It's so, just one form of consciousness. Yeah, you know, so people one. people have to be willing, and you can basically work them into being able to go into exactly. that place. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, you know, again, in the hypnosis world, there's two types of people. Not men or women or gay or straight. There are people who are tend to... For their first response to life and to everything when the flood of perception comes at them is to go to their intellect and to try to figure right. everything out with the head. And for them, we say, of course, that the longest journey is not from here to Tampa, Florida, but it's from the head to the heart. Oh, then you have the nice. other type of people who are much more feeling oriented. They're your artists and your poets and your intuitives. And of course, and of course, we're kind of both, you know, but we do have one way or the other we tend to lean. So, in addition to learning the person's personal symbological world, I also have to learn how they process information. Because, you know, if I'm uh, trying to get somebody into it, into the trance state, which is a normal, natural, relaxed state, almost like daydreaming. Yeah. If I'm trying to get somebody there by saying, feel the warmth of the Tahitian breeze as you hear the 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 ocean you know uh, lapping on on the beach you know and they're an analytical kind of person they're thinking well what's the temperature like and why am i here anyway and why the who's paying the bill you know so yeah. you have to go with them in a different way so learning not only the personal symbol system of your client but also how they process information and take language in is part of the original steps the initial steps ah uh -huh. interesting so if I had a particular condition where I was like uh, I, I had fear of like flying, and let's mm -hmm. let's uh, actually let's get a little bit more real. What do I have a fear? If I have somewhat of a fear, I'm actually starting to change quite a bit about public speaking, mm -hmm. which I'm sure is fairly common, or maybe it may be a step in someone's progression in terms of learning to do public speaking to you know to spend some time with you amongst other coaches as well. But it's got to mm -hmm. be a pretty meaningful. So, what what would you what would you what would be the process? What actually? Let's do a little work. Well, you know, you're not actually alone because after the fear of death, the fear of public speaking is the number two reason people freak out in this world. You know? <laughs> I've I've heard uh, that before. I mean, it's just not questionable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, what we would do is we would. We would dispel all the myths. There are five myths around hypnosis. And largely, these myths mm -hmm. are um, thanks to stage performance shows of hypnosis like Las Vegas or your, your high school fundraiser where the local hypnotist comes in. And, and there are five myths that you have to dispel. And the first one is that you, you don't lose consciousness. People think they lose consciousness because right. on these hypnotic shows, you see people yeah. you know, kind of drooped over. And, uh, you know, I say, no, I need you alert. 
I need you to be participating. You know, hypnotherapy is a journey where we work together through your meaning system, through your belief system. So I need you to be alert. The second myth we have to under- overcome is the myth that you lose consciousness. Uh, I'm sorry, that rather that you lose control. The first one was mm-hmm. consciousness. The second mm-hmm. one's control. And again, that's back to... You know, people on stage, when the guy you know, drops his keys, all of a sudden people start taking their clothes off or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know again, you know, you, the truth is when you are living in the hypnotherapeutic experience, you're actually gaining more control over your mind than less So because you're learning to use it more effectively. And more awareness? Yeah, more awareness, more control. You're learning how to activate, and we'll get to your your fear of public speaking in a minute. Then the third thing that we have to understand is that um, you're not going to blurt out secrets when you're in the hypnotic state. You know, you're not going to tell me, oh my God, when I was three, I tongue kissed the dog or something like that. I mean, I don't know what everybody's <laughs> and actually, That actually happened are. to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the secrets may come to you because as we open the subconscious mind, lots of stuff gets revealed to you. But whether you share it with anyone else is your own business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fourth myth we have to overcome is that somehow I'm going to be able to secretly program you to do something. So right now, say it's five after the hour, so that at the next hour, you're out front of your house, you hear a horn honk, and you start taking your clothes off, and you don't know why. <laughs> we don't do that in hypnosis. You know, people are afraid that somehow we're talking night of the living dead here, and that's the furthest from the truth. This is an open, active process where we're working to develop your, your best interest. And finally, the last one is that we don't change any cherished moral beliefs. So we don't go in and, if you're a Democrat, try to turn you into a Republican, or if you're gay, try to in, re- revert you to straightness or any of that kind of thing. That's not what this is about. This is about dealing with the issue that you bring to the table. Yeah. So as you come to this work with me, uh, you know, we, we do a little test. It's a pass-fail test, but it's a combination of body mechanics where your body responds, your hands respond in different ways, at different times to instructions that I give. And then there's a little inventory of, of 64 questions. And all of these are all around helping me understand how you take and process information. Then we do the induction. We get you into the chair, remembering that hypnosis is really the introduction to hypnosis is deep relaxation and very focused attention. And so we start what we call, excuse me, a systematic relaxation. Mm-hmm. Progressive relaxation. So by the time we're done, the entire body is deeply relaxed, and yet you are pinpoint, accurately focused and aware and with me. Because mm. that's what opens the subconscious mind, is that deep relaxation, the focused attention. Then we would begin the work around your fear, fear of public speaking. We, will, we would have talked in the pre-interview mm-hmm. about your experience, had you sp- spoken in public before and been ridiculed because you stammered or peed your pants or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, yeah. uh, you know, did you, uh, you know, did your people, somebody in your, your formative years say, you know, you'll never be able to speak on stage, you're a dodo, you're a mush mouth. You know, we find out all the kind of contributing factors that have somehow trickled down into the subconscious mind to make a program. And remember, the program is a combination of a belief and a feeling webbed together into this uh, subconscious automatic program. And then we would actually start, remember we said that we are subconscious behaviorists. We don't, we, we go right for cause. We actually have you begin to imagine that you're standing on stage in front of a thousand people giving a talk. And then we begin to build on that experience. Not only can you see yourself standing on the stage, you can see the people and they have quizzical looks on their face. I mean, we can build this whole wonderfully hypnotic audience and, and, and what are you feeling? And, and then we get to the place of where are you feeling in your body? You know, and most people feel this kind of pounding chest or dry mouth. And then we go back into deep relaxation and we begin to dial those symptoms down. And so it's called systematic desensitization. Mm. So, you know, if you're at a wild 10 when you're standing in front of a thousand people, then we bring it back down to a two or a three and you're feeling better. And now all of a sudden, again, 
There's 1,500 people, including Tony Robbins, sitting in the audience waiting for you to say something powerful. And back up to 10 you go. And we bring it back down again. There's techniques to bring it back down. It's the systematic desensitization. So that we finally get to the point where Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer, rest in peace, you know, and and um, yep. uh, anybody else that you want could be there. And you are able to be present in a relaxed state with a degree of consciousness. And, you know, sometimes it happens in one or two sessions. Sometimes it takes more, but we role play and practice. I'll put you into hypnosis, then I'll stand you up behind a podium and we'll practice that. So that's how we would do it. It's called systematic desensitization and then building new subconscious supportive programs around speaking in public. So awesome. So I could see this could be applied to so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, uh, human performance is an example. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see where that would be really, really, really useful. I'm just curious. I'm going to ask questions as they come up in my mind. It's just like indigenous cultures. Is there anything in nature, indigenous cultures, or anything that, you know, is a model, actually, that you could say, you know, these are cultures that actually exhibit many of the things that, you know, uh, the techniques and things that I use. Um, do they do they exist in some of these cultures and their behaviors um, naturally, as an example, um, when I lived in New Mexico a really long time, and and uh, working with some people, they observed some of the games that some of the native tribe people would play. And one of them was um, they recognized that there was great value in sitting down with a bunch of seeds and sorting them into different piles, and that was mm-hmm. actually used as a way to help people reduce or reduce confusion. Because the mm-hmm. physical thing of sorting seeds, as an example, sort of has a tendency to help people sort out their mind. So, well, that's true. You know, there's an old there's an old Zen story about the Zen master who had the student dig a huge pit mm-hmm. as part of his meditative practice, and then he said, "Master, it's done." He says, "Good, fill it up with the same dirt." Yeah. Okay, master is done. Dig the same dip. It's that same kind of thing. Remember, though, we live in a very unique culture. Mm-hmm. We're wired in so many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do uh, some work with, uh, and this overlaps a little bit with, with Catherine. Uh, we do some shamanistic work with um, some people in Brazil and Peru. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, People in the rainforest don't have the same levels of anxieties and issues that we do, that right. we carry here in these days and ages. Uh, they are much more attuned to the archaic and symbolic world. Carl Jung pointed this out 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that the people in what we would call the third, fourth world are much more attuned to the symbolic, and they're much more in tune to the instinctual, and they're much more in tune to the intuitive than we are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are, you know, certainly ways. I'm sure that, you know, the average person waking up in, you know, Portobello trying to decide whether they're going to try to capture a pig for the tribe today or not, you know, it's going to have their own particular degrees of stress, but they have a much broader sense of community support. They do a lot of dream work. Um, you know, so, some uh, tribal cultures start the day with group dream work where they listen to the symbols that everybody had the night before. And from that point on, they, they, they particularly uh, would then chart the day's uh, tasks for the tribe. There are aboriginal, aboriginal groups in New Zealand that still do that to this day. They have the first thing out of the, you know, you had your morning potty and whatever qualifies for Starbucks. And then you sit down and everybody shares the dream and they plan the day. So the, the aboriginal cultures are much more in touch with the archaic, with the symbolic and with the intuitive than we are. That's interesting. It's fascinating because you also have a group of people doing it together. Yeah. So you have a share. You have a you have shared symbology. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. That's pretty wild. Yeah, it, it's pretty fascinating. I had the occasion to work with Robert Johnson, who was a very mm-hmm. famous union analyst, and uh, we did some work in Canada where we worked with the Ojibwe, the, the native for nations people up there mm-hmm. and we did that we had our morning dream groups for two weeks and it seemed so stilted and awkward at first but by the end of the second week uh you know we could hardly tear ourselves away to get to do the other exercises and work that we had to do yeah what a fascinating idea about even just a regular u.s family actually mm-hmm. getting up in the morning and spending some time together sharing their dreams mm-hmm. i mean that what a great metaphor for the kind of dreams that you might want to create for your family externally 
Right, because again, you know, there are some cultures that um, I'm thinking, of course, of um, who's the four the four agreements. Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of the Four Agreements. Yes, you know, his, the Toltec culture says that we're all living in a dream all the time. Yes. This is all dream, so why not be a little more intentional about how to access it and change it? And, and I have heard that the Aboriginal tribes say that this is the dream, and, and when you sleep at night, that's the real time. Right, and that's one of the spiritual traditions that I practice, is that when you when your body rests, your spirit's off in the astral doing the work that it needs to do. Yeah. You know, um, Erickson, you know, speaking of our, our co-founder Erickson's here, or at least a connection, you know, he said most people are, are walking around every day in trances of disempowerment. Our job is to get them out of those trances and get them into a trance of empowerment. So get them out of the dream of disempowerment and into the dream of empowerment. That's really great. No, that's really great. It seems to me like you go down a rabbit hole most people may be not even aware of. If you're mm-hmm. working with cat, cat, I know that's happening. Yeah, I you, you can't see it here, uh, but I have my my altar over there. I call it an altar, and I have my rattles and my drums and my uh, wands and my crystals and and my smoke and my candles and. Um, there with very particular types of clients. Yeah. You know, we will do shamanistic work where we're engaging entities and um, past and past life regressions and engaging the the personalities of past life regressions, and uh, which would be very different than the person that comes down the hall from the doctor's office who needs right. help with pain reduction from you know opioid withdrawal. So, it really requires a real palette of. Of knowledge as well as you know a sensitivity, but obviously still what's the right thing to do. No, I know, and I see a drum on the wall too. Yeah, no, I know you can see an, uh, a drum, and there's my altar with all my stuff on it. Nice. So it's kind of hard to see, but yeah, nice. But it's kind of funny. We I did a lot of advertising. I said hypnosis after dark in Holly in Beverly Hills with Doctor James is very different. The staff <laughs> is gone. The doctors are gone. You know they can. You know they don't hear the drumming and the rattling and the yeah. sonic booms and the life is changing and yeah. And exactly. so uh, yeah, I really have tried to synthesize kind of this this shamanic work that 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 Kat and I do amongst another the circle of people that we do it with with more clinical hypnotherapy and I'm having some pretty good success. So without mentioning names or anything else, can you can you talk a little bit about maybe some more challenging quote unquote cases you may have had? Or, or ones that uh, actually you grew a great deal from? Well, it's interesting that in my book I talk about um, the mind-body connection, yeah. mind-body medicine. I'm, I've just been appointed to the faculty of the University of Philosophical Research here in Los Angeles. I'm going to be an adjunct professor, nice. and I'm going to teach a, I'm going to teach a course um, in September in um, hypnosis, shamanism, and the search for consciousness in the 21st century. Yeah, but as a preliminary, I'm teaching a, a class, a one-day, three-hour class on July 15th on med- medical hypnosis and the mind-body connection, oh. because the body is so receptive to hypnotherapy. There are studies after studies. You know, in, in Europe, for example, and I'll get to personal cases in a minute, but in Europe, for example, they're doing brain surgery with no anesthesia, with hypnotherapy only as the anesthetic. Amazing. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in, in America, it's very common to have people getting root canals done with the hypnotherapist sitting there whispering into their ear rather than having them be under anesthesia. And um, Harvard has done lots of work around broken bones that heal in a third of the time when somebody's having hypnotherapy in addition to traditional physical therapy. What so, is the structure of that? How does how does that work? I hate to interrupt you. Sorry, but... I just yeah. You know I always look at structures. I, I you know it's just sort of part of what I do. So what's the structure mm-hmm. of like um, you know speeding up any kind of you know recovery with hypnosis? Are you actually aiding the body? You are. Um, again, it's it's a it's a. Um, there's a wonderful book called Rituals of Healing, and and it has lots of hypnotic, um, medically hypnotic. Uh, scripts in it, but it mm-hmm. talks about the fact that you know that you have your client in state, and you say, for example, that you, you now, as your um, heart is recovering from the open heart surgery, all of a sudden the blood is becoming so red and so deep and rich, and you can see 
you know, healing um, uh, uh, jewels coming through, and and the, and there's they found lots of kind of that kind of symbol. Um, I had a client, have a client, who uh, has ALS, which is a very debilitating uh, nerve denigrating disease. This client came to me because they were very depressed, as you might imagine, in a wheelchair. Um, and I said, you know, I would love to work with you because depression and hypnotherapy very often are the go hand in glove as to bringing relief. And I said, but I said, you know, how about if we play a little bit too? Like, can we play with your symptoms and see? And fortunately, this client was open enough to having heard a talk that I'd given on the mind-body connection to agree. And like I said, so she came to me in a wheelchair, couldn't even stand up. Uh, four months later, she is using a walker now. And our goal next month is to have her with a cane. So she's actually reversing the symptoms of ALS using the power of her mind. Um, so, I believe it. you know, yeah, so those kinds of, of, of cases challenge me mm-hmm. because it's really kind of put up or shut up. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. You, even, now you got to walk it for sure. Yeah, even though, of course, um, it really is, you know, the, the mind and the capacity of the person that's, that's the, the patient. But, you know, another, another one that's always kind of a hot button issue is when men come to me with erectile dysfunction issues, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, because unless there is a physiological issue like, you know, nerve damage from a prostate surgery or a high blood pressure medicine, it, you know, that if it's anything else, you know, ED is very, very amenable to hypnotherapy. Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, if, you know, after a session or two, if, you know, somebody's not standing at attention, then there's a lot of pressure on the hypnotherapist to find out what's going on. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, anytime that, you know, people put their life in your hands and are asking for significant change, you know, on the one hand, I, I had one client who is a very well-known songwriter here in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said to me, he said, you know, I'm sick of these horrible paychecks, you know, because apparently the royalties folks only pay quarterly, this ASCAP, I guess it's called. And I said, what is a crappy paycheck? He says, it's only three twenty-five. I said, $325? He says, no, $325,000. He says, that sucks for the amount of work I get and the money that th- these records are making. I said, okay, so what do you want? And he says, $3 million. I said, okay, here we go. And off we went. Wow. And we yeah. had we had four sessions, and he sent me a video chat picture of a check for $4 million that he got. Nice. So, um, you know, that's one thing which is really cool, but seeing somebody getting out of a wheelchair is really awesome too. So, you know, yeah, there's just lots of, um, you know, because one of my responsibilities is this as a therapist is to instill belief hmm. in the patient, in the client. You know, uh, again, I've been told when you work with the curanderios, the the healers, the traditional healers down in the in the Amazon basin, I'd be going down in Brazil to study with them. But that if you ask them, you know, my mother has a palsied hand, or you know, I have cancer, or you know, I've lost eyesight in my right eye. Can you heal me? They never give you the American medical white. Well, you know, the statistics say that, you know, there's this chance of possible. They say yes. And they really believe it. They say, yes, we can heal you. And, and, and you know, one of the things that st- medical studies have shown when it comes to mind-body medicine is that the degree to which the, the therapist or the physician has overwhelming confidence in the ability of the patient to heal, there's a like, greater likelihood they will. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the great disservices people that doctors bless them because they do provide valuable services, but a lot of times they'll have a patient that has some sort of condition and they'll say, I'm really sorry, but you've only got about three months to live. And at that point, that's when their life ends. And that's just like not right to me. Well, and you see, and we call that in the business, there's the placebo effect, and yep. we're very familiar with that. Um, placebo in the Latin means I will help. But there's the nocebo effect, N-O-C-E-B-O effect, nocebo effect. And um, that's the curse. And again, in traditional cultures of the shaman or the witch doctor says you're going to die from an abscess in your throat in three days and you believe it, sure enough, three days later, you're gone. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, um, uh, there's a clinical example of this. If, if you have a minute, in Japan they did a study, sure. and how come they do these studies on people, I don't know. Yeah. But they took people who were, who were severe asthmatics, and they said, here is a red inhaler and a blue inhaler. This is in my book. There's a red inhaler and a blue inhaler. When you take the red inhaler, it's going to activate your asthma. Mm. And it's going to be pretty bad, but immediately you'll take the blue inhaler with this powerful new medicine, and it'll take it away. And thank you so much because you're going to make a difference in the lives of thousands to suffer. So sure enough, red inhaler, blue inhaler, two minutes later, it was just the same saline solution in both. It was all a matter of what they believed was happening yeah. that, that caused the, the, the bronchitis. Another example, again, in Japan, why in Japan? They took children who had skin allergies, and they said, okay, here's poison ivy. We're rubbing it on you. And they broke out in all the blisters and highs. And, of course, it was only sweet grass. It wasn't poison ivy. And so then they said, and here's the – so – it, the nocebo effect, when the doctor says, you know, you've had the prostate cancer, you'll never have an erection again. You know, men walk around with that. You know, the doctor says you have three months to live. Unless you have a huge bullshit factor inside you, yeah. you're likely to take that curse on, that nocebo yes. effect on. Yeah. So uh, we, we try to reverse some of that stuff. Yeah, that's great work. That's really great work. And I'm really glad you're mentioning it because I want people to hear that. You know, mm-hmm. we've I've was able to do a short show with uh, Dr. Ginger, who is um, known for the rainbow cleanse juice diet. And mm-hmm. she gave a fabulous talk. I'm not sure what episode it was, but, um, but she tells a story about all of this in terms of belief. And uh, her father, who was a triple A type that actually was diagnosed and he, his, her father believed the doctor. And mm-hmm. uh, that was the day he pretty much gave up. And it's just mm-hmm. like really important, you know, it, it, it's like the saying, uh, you, know, you know, David, if you think so. So, John, what do you think about this? Well, if you think so. I mean, it really is mm-hmm. comes down to that, doesn't it? So yeah, I, I think largely that's true. I mean, I'm, there are certainly biological sure. things at play. But uh, the more and more and more that we learn about psychoneuroimmunology, which is the correlation between the release of peptides in the uh-huh. body with emotions, you know, the, the more that we understand all of this, the more we see that our minds and, and our willpower and our, and our capacities to heal are far more than we've ever given ourselves or medicine's given us credit for. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the book. And why don't you show it to me? Not everybody out there is going to be able to see it. But uh, discover your, your magnificent, discover your magnificent mind, finding freedom, prosperity, and healing. Awesome. Where can people get it? Amazon or Barnes and Noble uh-huh. right now. Uh huh. Now, and now here's the provision. And so, please, 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 listeners, when you go to buy the book, yeah. If you type in "discover your magnificent mind." The Amazon algorithm gives you every book but this one. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I'm not for long. Mention. Not for long. Yes. So what you have to type in is discover your magnificent mind, DR, like Dr. David James, and then the page comes up. So please, discover your magnificent mind, DR, David James. Then it comes up and you can order it. All right. It's, it's a very short book. It's only 110 pages. I wrote it intentionally because people don't like to read big, long books anymore anyway. Yeah. With yeah. just short examples and, and at the end some exercises as how to activate this in your own life right now. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Is it? It's probably. Is it available on Kindle too? Probably, huh? Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah, that's really hardback, good. shortback, and Kindle. I'm in the process of being in the studio making it a, an audio book too. Oh, nice. I always, yeah. Most of the, not most, but a lot of, lot of, the books I read are on Audible. Just because when I'm traveling, I can listen to it. You know. Yeah, I so mean, I've got obviously their standards a, up, and I've got a studio, and we're working on that. And that's great. It's 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 an it's an interesting experience trying to read your own book out loud. So, so oh yeah, so you're reading? Good. Yeah. Oh yeah. good. I've done voiceover work before, and mm-hmm. I really, really, really enjoy reading. Actually, um, mostly poetry and things. Mm-hmm. So, what is? Uh, well, obviously, you've talked a little bit about what's new for you, but it sounds mm-hmm. like you're going to be heading to the Amazon. Is that right? Yeah, in Brazil. Uh, at oh, at Christmas. Brazil. Yeah, mm-hmm. Christmas. Great. Yeah, 
yeah, during the Christmas break, I'm going to be going down. Uh, again, there's a spiritual circle that, that Kat and I are part of, and uh, a bunch of us are going down to study uh, shamanistic plants and shamanistic nice. medicines and the use of those nice. uh, in, in, in therapeutic work. Uh-huh. And uh, so we're going to start in Rio and then head out to the jungle from there. Yeah, good. That sounds like fun. So Kat's going too? I, I, I hope so, but our, our, certainly our circle is going, so yeah, we're going to try to get nice. down there. Yeah. Can you think of one defining moment in your life where just absolutely everything changed? Um, I have several. Um, but I would have to say that the most defining moment of my life was when I got kicked out of the Episcopal priesthood. You got kicked out. Great. Congratulations. <laughs> That's a good sign yeah. in my book. <laughs> um, because it was all tied up in addictions and, and behaviors around my addictions. And it was through that that I got sober and started seriously studying consciousness and moved back to California to reunite with family and, and, and have been on this journey ever since. So, yeah, getting kicked out of the church was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's good. I like it. Anything, any, any other moments that are a little definable for you? Well, when I started using plant medicine, Uh um, in my, in my studies and my practices, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that the archetypal world came to life in a way that, that I had only read about. And, um, uh, that, like I said, that influenced, you know, my, my practice and the way that I do the works that I do now. I mean, I don't, there are some therapists who are very bold Mm -hmm. and who will introduce, uh, who will give a client, uh, a plant-based shamanic medicine and wait, you know, the 35 or 40 minutes till it kicks in and then do five hours of therapy because with all the boundaries that have been dissolved, you go deep and hard, and uh, I'm not there. Yeah. I don't know that I'll ever be there, but I'm not there. But uh, the, the, what I've learned about working in the astral and what I've learned about deepening state beyond the clinical parts. In the book, I talk about the fact that that the, the one of the latest understandings of the mind is, you know, if, if you look at the book, for example, yeah. and this was kind of a fuss with the publisher was that, from the look of the book, the mind is the brain, yeah. you know, kind of the sparkly brain there, which, of course, is not true. You know, the mind is throughout the entire body. You know, the mind is anywhere there is a, a neuron is that's where mind is, that the brain is a via, a biological vehicle so that mind can work. You know, so some let's, people, let's talk some people a little, say the mind is the brain at work, for yeah. example. Okay, so let's talk a little deeper about that or just explain that only because – it's actually not a concept I've really thought of much of. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the brain is a biological two and a half pounds of computing power that rival- that exceeds any computer that we have on the planet today. Mm. Um, and, you know, that you can cut open the brain and you can, by stimulating a part of the brain, cause a hand to rise or, you know, an eye to close. But what they've not ever been able to find clinically in any of their studies is the one who gives the command to raise the hand or to close the eye. You know, they they can stimulate the mechanism. But, you know, Deepak Chopra back years ago when he was first starting, and this was a much more controversial subject than it is now, somebody said, I don't believe in mind-body connections. He says, lift up your foot for a minute. I want to show you something. So the person did. And he says, how did you do that? But with the power of your mind, you know, and the person kind of went, oh, okay, you make the point. Yeah. So the mind is more than the brain. Very often when somebody's in the hypnotic state, I'll say, you know, you're, you might be feeling warmer or cooler. Or you might feel tingling in your body. You might feel heaviness or lightness. All these are normal responses because when mind states change, when you drop out of fight or flight, which is where most Americans live nowadays in yeah. some degree of fight or flight. When you drop out of fight or flight, when you get into a more relaxed state of mind, then brain waves begin to change. And you go from alpha, which is kind of our conscious, through beta down to theta, which is where we want to be for hypnotic work. Delta is when you sleep. We don't want you there. We want you theta. And so when the mind state changes, 
then the brain waves change and then the physiology changes. When you're in theta, your blood pumps at a different level. There's a greater degree of soft tissue interaction with blood and all kinds of things. Well, the next thing that we've discovered now, and this is thanks to the degrees that to the information given us by quantum physics, is that and there's a group called the HeartMath Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I, I'm not. And, you know, no. Yeah, and they're worth exploring. We do a lot of their work too. You know, they say that the actual energy that the, the the heart has more electrical energy than the brain, for example. We know that for a fact, and that the heart actually can radiate its energy out up to eight feet from the human body. Um, and, and we know that the mind, again, thanks to quantum physics, which says that everything is energy, and that as the as the vibration slows down, it becomes desk, it becomes computer, it becomes Starbucks cup, but that at its essential energy, it's all, at the essential level rather, it's all energy. So, uh, what we're learning now is the mind is not merely a process, but it's also part of the field, which explains ESP, which explains remote viewing, which explains teleportation, the kinds of things that used to be science fiction that now the Stanford Research Institute has proven, proven over and over again. And um, so when we see now we're emerging from the mind merely as that to the mind is field. It's a way to actually interact. So if you and I are in the same room, I'm very cautious. I don't touch you needlessly because there's going to be an energy exchange, a mind exchange. Um, and so um, it's a fascinating new field of study and it helps expand our ability to to work with the elasticity of the universe awesome very nice because i think so many people are just living above their neck way too much oh yeah um yeah jonathan goldman is a teacher a therapist up in oregon he's written a book called the gift of the body mm-hmm. and um it's a big book I and mean, it's, it's it's for somebody that wants to read and and he talks and it's all about the chakra systems and how the different chakras interact and he says that ultimately the heart chakra is the master of the entire system that when we're able to move into heart energy and heart space, everything else goes into alignment. But our culture doesn't teach that. Yeah. Our culture teaches us to try to figure out with our brains and yep. then our mind things. But, you know, your mind, I, I would agree with this person down there. The mind is not a, um, uh, what do you call it? A, sen- 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 a sensory uh, instrument. Sen- sensory. It's a perceptive yes. process. It's a perceptive process. So, um, learning how to use more specifically the subconscious mind where the power is to be perceptive and to engage at these various levels is part of the fascination of this journey. Yeah, no, I am absolutely fascinated by the work you're doing. Absolutely love it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell all of us out there can tell. Yeah. So if there was, uh, just one little health tip or something that would, uh, enhance someone's life and you were going to tell the world the one thing that people you think need to know or practice or whatever, what would that be? Relax. 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 Um, When we are anxious, you know, cortisol, adrenaline, just coursing through our bodies, you might as well open up your central nervous system and pour a gallon of Starbucks super duper coffee through you. But the more, and because when we get into fight or flight, you know, that the, you know, the, the blood goes to the limbs cause we're getting ready to run or to hit something, you know, our vision focuses, our heart rate increases. There's no creativity in fight or flight. And so much of America lives in fight or flight. You know, my next iteration of a business card is going to have a motto. Currently I don't, but it's going to be whatever, Whatever the mind creates, it can recreate. Mm. Whatever the mind creates, it can recreate. But I would even reduce it down to one word. Relax. Find a way every day to dial down. Yeah. And we're not talking about wine or beer or alcohol in general. Conscious relaxation. Breathing meditation. Yoga. Sitting in a chair and taking 10 deep breaths. Just find a way to dial down. What do people do in Los Angeles to dial down, given the intensity of the energy. Mm-hmm. Well, in in an unhealthy way, at least in my opinion. Yeah. There's lots of sex, drugs, and rock and roll going on. There's lots of um, um, overspending. Mm-hmm. 
you know, over consumer spending, you know, mm-hmm. Rodeo drives two blocks from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lots of Bentleys and Rolls is driving around and, and, and I say all this with no judgment to the people who do these things, but you know, there's there, we either, uh, stimulate or, uh, or anesthetize, you know, one of the two when we're in, when we're in an unhealthy place, yeah. stimulation would be sex. Uh, you know, some people become, and you know, don't come at me with with pitchforks and 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 flames here. But some people become exercise addicts, you know, fitness addicts, you know, and and fitness has a, an incredible place in the well being of the human body. But yeah. you know, they, they like any substance or process, you can become addicted to anything. Um, so they stimulate or they narcotize. Uh, healthy ways in LA, uh, lots of hikes, there's lots of parks, there is lots of yoga, there's meditation groups, um, there are self-improvement programs, uh, but you really have to have a little bit of counterculturalness about you to be willing to do that mm-hmm. because the culture is so oriented towards using Terrence McKenna's language the machinery of production and consumption yeah 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 interesting yeah anything else you want to talk about cover no i just i hope they buy my book because it's 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 a good read and it'd be very helpful i'm i work by people around the world i have clients in dubai and london uh right now and one in paris and i do it by skype or zoom Uh You're, you're you're introducing me to a new platform so uh, hypnotherapy is doable, you know, yes. with some folks, it doesn't work with everybody at a distance, but, uh, I have great success with that. Um, or if somebody would just like to talk a little bit more, I'd be glad to do that too. And what is the best way to get in touch with you? Well, my website is davidjameshypnosis.com. Mm-hmm. One word, davidjameshypnosis.com. My email is davidjameshypnosis at gmail.com. Uh-huh. And, um, those would be the ways. All right. Awesome. Well, David, I really want to thank you. This has been just great for me. And uh, I'll follow up with you and uh, exchange some notes about uh, helping you get out there even a little bit further. Thank you. I had a wonderful time. Yeah. So let's make sure that we catch up after the the trip that you're going to be taking. I'd love to hear about the experience. Yeah, assuming I come back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that a possibility? Of course it is. (laughs) I guess anything's possible, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye.